Welcome to the Growth Kung Fu Podcast, a podcast in which we share the best growth stories and insights from Asian startups for Asian startups. I'm Wai Hoi. Hi, I'm Pratish. Thanks for listening to us today. Uh, if you like what we do, please don't hesitate to subscribe on growthkungfu.com. Today, we are joined by Pankaj Jain, a partner at 500 Startups, the reference Silicon Valley Accelerator and seed fund founded by Dave McClure and Christine Tsai. And at 500 Startups, Pankaj splits his time between the US and India and has led investments in over 50 companies across six countries. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Pankaj. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot, Pankaj. Um, so I hope you can just indulge us for a minute. And, and for the sake of our listeners, uh, what is 500 Startups and how did you get inv- first involved? Sure. So 500 Startups, we are a seed program and also um, uh, an early stage investor. So we run a program in California, which is our seed program. It's a four-month program where companies come, uh, spend four months and really focus on early aspects of growth and um, then we also run a distro, uh, uh, it used to be called distro dojo. Now it's called our series a program. And that's for companies that are, uh, pretty much series, uh, a ready and they need a little bit of help on the growth side. So they come, we run these programs in different parts of the world, like London, LA, and these companies, uh, we try to help these companies with, uh, growth, um, and metrics and get them to a series a. Uh, we also invest in many companies outside of both of these programs around the world. Um, I don't know what the latest count is, but last I checked, we were a little bit over 1,600 companies across the globe. And uh, I think roughly 60% of those were non-program-oriented investments, um, so a considerable number. Uh, I joined 500 about a little over four years ago in October of 2012, uh, I was uh, running Startup Week in, in India and in 2011, and I saw that um, 500 Startups was planning their first Geeks on a Plane trip to India, so I reached out and uh, started helping them with organizing and connecting with various folks across India. And, um, you know, a, a little more than a year later, they asked me to come on board because they wanted to start investing more aggressively in India. Right. Uh, speaking of the Indian startup space, so you first came into the country in 2007, 500 startups first came into 2012. Both of these uh, first-time efforts weren't that successful. So in what ways has the Indian startup space changed in 2016 uh, from 2007 and 2012? Uh, yeah, a lot happens in 10 years. Um, you know, to, in 2007, there wasn't really any ecosystem to speak of. Um, in 2007, you know, uh, nobody was really looking at startups the way people are looking at them today. And I mean both entrepreneurs as well as investors as well as uh, just the overall society. Um, back then, most of the VCs were doing more private equity type of deals um, hospital chains, uh, brick and mortar restaurants, things like that. And tech really hadn't taken off at that point. And uh, amongst the general population, there, there was really no understanding of what a startup was, um, or what professional entrepreneurship is. So, you know, there, there was a, a group of people in various cities that were starting to come together and form a community. And it kind of really started with Barcamp. Um, back in 2006, 2007, 
And it grew from there into uh, many other things. And many of them at the early stages were event-driven. Um, and I think a lot of the investors also started seeing potential opportunities um, that were not brick-and-mortar, but they were more tech-focused. And e-commerce was the first uh, wave of that. Uh, so a lot of the e-commerce companies like Flipkart, like Snapdeal, uh, received their first checks between 2006 and 2010. Um, and that was kind of the first wave of this move towards tech-based uh, startups uh, by VCs. Uh, by 2011, you started seeing uh, the e-commerce boom really taking shape. And that spurred a lot of interest by other folks, first in e-commerce and then to, into other areas. Um, and of course, because of the uh, availability of information far more readily, as more Indians got online, uh, they started reading TechCrunch and started reading um, you know, uh, VC blogs like Fred Wilson's blog or Brad Feld's blog. So there, a lot of the information started coalescing um, in a way that both the investors and entrepreneurs started seeing opportunities uh, in the tech space and how that could really solve very Indian problems. So by 2012, the ecosystem had moved significantly from where it was in 2007, 2008. Um, I don't remember exactly how many fund, uh, companies got funded uh, in 2012, but it was a significant amount. And I think, if I remember correctly, 2012 is also the first time um, Flipkart raised a substantial amount of money. Um, and that really kind of kick things into high gear uh, where Indian investors and entrepreneurs started seeing that there was a lot of foreign capital available for the right companies. Um, so that that's really what set off phase two. I think early 2012 is when phase two kind of kicked off. Um, 2013, 2014 saw a massive drop in funding. Um, a lot of investors were sitting on the sidelines. Uh, a lot of founders uh, weren't really quite sure how the companies were going to pull through uh, that environment. And a lot of it was driven purely by the election. Um, by 2014, once the election in India was done, um, there was a lot of capital that was uh, sitting around and needed to be deployed. So that set off, in my opinion, wave three of the current ecosystem, which was, you know, a massive amount of money got flooded into the market, both both domestically and internationally, um, and that created a lot of new entrepreneurs, a lot of opportunities. Uh, in my opinion, a lot of really horrible ideas got money when they shouldn't have. Kind of. What are you thinking of when result. you th when you say that package? <laughs> uh, well, I've been pretty vocal about it before. So you know, like a lot of the food delivery companies. Um, grocery delivery companies, you know, it, it, those are things that, in my opinion, just didn't make any sense. It, it, those are things that didn't really solve problems for most Indians. Um, you know, they were nice to have. And, you know, sure, if I was still living in India, yeah, I, I'd probably use one of those apps. But my wife wouldn't, you know, even though she's technically fairly savvy, she, she would order groceries the same way she always has. She'd call up the local grocer and tell them to bring over whatever she wanted. And if he brought over something that wasn't fresh or wasn't good, she'd tell him to go replace it and he'd replace it, right? So that's one area. The other one is like logistics. Logistics, I think a lot of people jumped into logistics because, you know, it was sexy and, you know, people started seeing Uber and a lot of other companies in the U.S. 
um, gaining traction and raising lots of money. Um, so a lot of people tried jumping into logistics in India. And again, I think it was the same problem. They approached it from a tech perspective rather than an operations perspective. Um, so, you know, those are two areas that I didn't invest in because one, I didn't understand how these businesses could be sustainable. Uh, so it wasn't really me being brilliant and saying, no, these are stupid. It was me saying, I, I don't understand, right? And until I understand, um, I'm not ready to take a bet on these things. But I don't think there was a tell that said, oh, we shouldn't get involved in this stuff. Other than you start seeing people with no experience in those industries jumping in and saying, hey, tech is going to solve everything. Right. So in Asia and in India in particular, labor is very cheap. Because of that, there is this unspoken trap of hiring labor for a problem instead of engineering yourself out of it and thereby strengthening your position in the market. What can an Indian or a nation startup do not to fall into this trap? Well, you know, I mean, if you think about it, historically, it made sense, right? Why make a capital expenditure if I'm a business? Why spend you know, a significant amount of my revenue on computers and software when I can just hire people to do the job. And they're going to cost like a fraction of that. So, you know, I think speed wasn't as important 10, 15, 20 years ago, right? Cost was more, uh, was more important. Today, costs are still important, but you know, India has been growing very well for the last decade and people, a lot of people have made a lot of money and gotten very rich and a lot of businesses are doing very well. So there's more disposable income both within businesses and with individuals. So the other thing that has also, at least on the business side, has a small business side has driven things is that a lot of the family owned businesses, you know, decades ago uh, were really worried about struggle, survival. And over time, as they made money, you start seeing a lot of their children go to the West and get educated. And many of them would stay in the U.S. for a couple of years, work you know, on Wall Street and Silicon Valley, advertising, whatever. And then they come back to India or Asia and get back into their family businesses and they say, whoa, this is too arcane. I don't want to be pushing paper all the time and why do I need a file? Huh. You know, uh, I, I, I'm not used to this. I'm used to opening up a computer or my phone and getting all the information that I need about my business and or about the job I do. So I think that has started driving a lot of uh, the mindset, my, mindset change in India specifically is that you have a lot of young Western educated uh, Indians returning to India after five, 10 years in the US or the UK or Singapore or Australia, and now saying, well, look, I'm used to technology. I'm comfortable with technology. It makes me more efficient. It means that I don't have to spend, you know, 13, 14 hours a day at the office. I can spend five hours a day at the office and, you know, spend three hours a day uh, somewhere else, still engaged with work, but also have more time for my family. So that's driven a lot of it. The costs of technology have come down significantly. And there's been a uh, slow but gradual shift towards bringing a lot of consumer-based technology into the small, medium enterprise. And if you look at what that means, it's the, I, let's call it the whatsappification 
of small medium business in India. The number of merchants that you'll come across that are talking to their customers and you know basically putting their inventory online, it's all via WhatsApp. None of them know how to use other stuff, but they all know how to use WhatsApp. So they, they're, they're buying cheaper smartphones. They're able to get a smartphone for less than $50, but they're also willing to spend over $1,000 on a smartphone. So you have the whole gamut of people that are spending money on these devices. They are all using WhatsApp at the very least. They're taking pictures of their inventory. They're sharing it with their customers. They're communicating with their customers over WhatsApp. And what's that that's leading to the next phase where it's like, well, I just took 3,000 pictures and shared them with all of my customers and different customers. Why can't I have all 3,000 pictures available to share with all of my customers if I want? Right? So they're starting to think about this in a different way now. Things that for us might seem normal. It's like, okay, here's an online catalog. Go nuts. Go take a look at it. Um, so I think that's driving a lot of the shift to technology. And the other thing is competition. Competition has just been increasing consistently. So people need to move faster. And they're starting to realize that moving faster is more important than saving money. Because if I move quicker and I'm more efficient, I can make more money. So it's less about saving, it's more about making more. So I think these are the things that have been driving technology forward. Um, it may not be at the pace that people would like, but it's significantly further ahead than it was 10 years ago when I landed in India. And, you know, if I talk to people that are not in the tech industry and most of my family and uh, some friends are not in the tech industry, uh, you know, for them, this is all like, wow, oh, my God, I can carry a cell phone and just share stuff with my customers from around the world. And to them, it's like, this is amazing. It's like, wow, you could have done this before also, but you have to use email on a computer. You know, so this shift that WhatsApp has created, I think, is really going to drive a lot of that. What What comes to mind, uh, Pankaj, is is this also true for um, tier two and tier three cities? Actually, like this 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 entire trend. Um, we've spoken to some founders who who have this banging tech product, but for whom uh, you know penetration into those into the new frontier, into the two, tier two and tier three city where where internet adoption is still still not at the same level as as let's say a Bangalore. Yeah. How yep. what, what's your advice to some of these guys looking to penetrate those cities? So I think tier two and tier th- tier three cities are still very hard to penetrate, and no one's really figured out how to penetrate those cities. Um, you know, I think mobile networks in some cases in some cities are actually better than they are in a Bangalore or a Delhi or a Mumbai. I mean, I've had horrible experiences in all three of these major metros where uh, I was in Mumbai in early 2015 and I just turned my phone off and left it in the hotel room because I couldn't make calls. I couldn't receive calls. I couldn't use data for days. So I was like, why am I carrying this around? Just leave it. Um, you know, and I've been to smaller towns where uh, 3G data is not bad. The, I think the real factor has been not necessarily the infrastructure in tier two, tier three cities and digital infrastructure, but more cost, right? Like the, the, the cost of data is still fairly high in India. Um, and most people are still very price sensitive in India, especially in tier two and tier three cities. So for somebody to spend 20 or $30 a month on data, it has to have a massive amount of value for them. So, you know, 
for for some time, the data, uh, the telcos started getting uh, smart about this, and they started offering like weekend packs, light packs, where you can, you know, buy uh, usage to only WhatsApp at night, you know, for like less than a dollar, um, or a weekend pass for like you know f- for five dollars, you can get uh, unlimited uh, internet access or you know up to a few hundred meg or something. That's changed rapidly um, in the last six months. Uh, Reliance has been working on the Geo platform, and they announced and have done their launch um, a couple of months ago. I think it was September. And what they've done is now they said, look, everyone's going to get 4G data. Uh, I think the average is somewhere between 10 and 25 megabits uh, speed, even Tier 2 and Tier 3 cities. All calls are free nationwide, no roaming, and it's going to cost you 50 rupees for a gigabyte of data. 50 rupees for a gigabyte of data is less than a dollar. It's like 75 cents for a gigabyte of data. That's going to change how people not only think about the internet, but use the internet. Because right now, sure, you can get 4G from Airtel and Vodafone. Good luck streaming anything off of that. You're never going to watch a video. It's it, it, it's it's unbearable. I guess the big question then, package is is how do you manage to capitalize on that? Then how do you manage to capitalize as a startup within this situation? So you know, a lot of the challenges that startups have is discoverability, right? And people just don't know that their app or their product exists because they're not online. And you know, WhatsApp has solved that to some degree, um, at least as far as communication goes. So people are sharing things with each other on WhatsApp. So it's starting to solve that discoverability problem for people that are not online 24-7 like us, right? Um, so a lot of the things that uh, founders thought about are going to change. Offline is still very important. So in Tier 2 and Tier 3 cities buying billboards, putting up uh, physical advertisements, buying an ad in their local newspaper, vernacular newspaper, that's going to be, it's still going to be important because that's how people are going to know that you exist. Um, Having a presence there. India is still a very personal country, right? When you need to sell something to somebody, you got to go to that person's office like five times, three out of those five times, you're not going to even talk about business. You're just going to drink tea and you're going to talk about other things. Um, you know, and in small towns, it's even more so, right? Like Indians have a lot of time on their hands. And um, Kunal Shah, the founder of Free Charge, you know, he, 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 he put it nicely. He said, you know, in the U.S., we're, uh, we suffer from time deficit. We don't have enough time in the day. And whereas India is a very time-rich country, people have a lot of time on their hands. Tier two and three cities even more so. So you you need personal interaction. You need to put people on the ground to go and meet with these people, to talk to these people. That's how they get to know you and get comfortable with who you are and what your business is. So in tier two and tier three cities, all of those things are still going to be important. And that, that increased the cost of running that startup, right? Um, so some folks, some startups have tried interesting things where they've gone out and said, okay, there's a university in this tier two city. Let's go uh, spend some time at the university and create university ambassadors, 
right? And that university ambassador will kind of spread the word amongst the university, and that hopefully will start spreading throughout the rest of the city as well. For our listeners,、um, I gather that you are a regular subscriber to our show and enjoy the stories we publish.、Uh, Pancatch today came to us via a recommendation from our friends at Veni Vidi Visi,、uh, which means I came, I saw, I ventured. A podcast hosted by our friend Nipun Gupta,、uh, where he uncovers savvy startup stories from investors in the United States and India.、Uh, Nipun lives in San Francisco and advises many startups on cybersecurity and general growth strategies. The link to the Vinivdi VC podcast is available in our show notes. If you're interested in knowing about breaking into venture capital and knowing your investor better,、uh, Vinivdi VC is the podcast for you. So, Pankaj, for some of your listeners out there who are dying to apply for 500 startups, what are you looking for in your next batch of startups? So. You know, I think the the most important thing that I look for is founders that are thinking about a product and, more importantly, thinking about a problem that really is not been solved yet. And you know, I've said this for years, and I still really believe it is when you walk out of your hotel room or your office or your house in India. There's about a million problems staring you in the face all around you. The problem is that most people, when we live there, we become oblivious to those things. We we block them out, and that doesn't mean those problems are going to go away. Those problems are still going to be there. If you can find solutions to those problems and really build on those solutions, that's where the real opportunity is. It's not building an AI chatbot for e-commerce. That to me doesn't excite me in the least.、Um, you know. I, I, I met somebody who was building a solution for water notification. So most people don't realize this, but you only get in in most major metros in India, you only get four hours of running water per day: two hours in the morning, two hours in the evening, and it's usually from a specific time to a specific time. But like most things in India, time is a very stretchable、uh, phenomenon, right? And、uh, Just because you're gonna, you're supposed to get water at 4 p.m. doesn't mean you'll actually get it. Well, how about for people that are living in poor neighborhoods that are out working, they can't be home at a specific time and just wait for the water to turn on so they can fill up their water tanks for drinking and cleaning their dishes and cleaning their clothes and bathing and everything else. What if they got a water, a, a, an SMS alert that just said, "Hey, this is the time that water is going to be available," and that was because there were sensors placed in the water distribution system. Right, that's a real problem that people will pay small amounts on a regular basis for because it solves a really important need for them.、Um, there was another company that I met that said, "Look, garbage collection in India is still a major problem. Pollution is a problem. Well, how do we take、uh, these two problems, combine them, and start collecting garbage in you know in a way that makes economic sense and delivering it?" To biodiesel plants that are going to pay for it, right? So you can sell garbage now to biodiesel plants, which aren't getting enough raw material、uh, to power their plants, and you can help the pollution problems across the country. These are real issues that Indians have to deal with in a real on a day to day basis. So I, I think the biggest opportunities to come are solving real Indian problems. 
that are also transportable to Southeast Asia, to Africa, and most of, you know, Asia. So those are things that I think are really exciting. And these could be anything from education to health, digital health, uh, microfinance, garbage collection, water distribution, data analytics, um, you know, the, most of these places, uh, especially if you go to like tier two, tier three cities in India, and I'm sure many other uh, parts of Asia and Africa, there's not a lot of data, right? At least not structured data in any sense. So no one's really able to make informed decisions about anything. So if you can collect that data in uh, a cost-effective way, you can make that data usable, and you can make data-driven decisions. I think that's good for everyone also. So I think there's a lot of interesting opportunities, but at the core, it's about solving real day-to-day problems. Don't try and solve, you know, first-world problems for somebody sitting in New York or Seattle or San Francisco. Go solve a problem for somebody who lives and breathes Delhi's air on a daily basis. Yeah. That's a real challenge right there. (laughs) It is. Yeah. 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 So what makes up of a successful 500 startup founder? Uh, you know, I think that's pretty much the same everywhere. You know, it's, it's not a 500 founder versus uh, anybody else. But, you know, I think being bold, but being humble um, is really important, not just for uh, successful founders, but also for investors. Um, I think uh, recognizing opportunities uh, early, taking chances when you see those opportunities but also being able to learn and grow consistently is important. You know, running a two-man startup uh, out of uh, your bedroom is very different than running a company with 5,000 employees, right? So can you grow into that? Um, you know, and every stage you're going to kind of feel like, oh, I made it, right? But then you stop and you have to kind of think and say, well, wait, there's a long way to still to go, Uh how am I going to grow into this, right? So I think recognizing that you need to constantly be learning and start constantly be talking to other people and uh, developing mentors, right, for each stage that you're going to get into is also important, right? Getting people that can help you personally and guide you into that uh, is useful. So thank you, Pankaj. It was a pleasure having you on Growth Kung Fu. Uh, where can our listeners find more from you and 500 Startups? Definitely check out our website, 500.co. And for me, I'm on Twitter, P-J-A-I-N on Twitter, uh, as well as uh, I have a blog on Medium, uh, medium.com slash P-J-N, I think it is. And I'm in New York and uh, India very frequently, uh, so usually at events. Happy to meet and chat at an event. You can find more from us at growthkungfu.com. Thank you for listening and speak to you soon.